Please uh, turn your Bibles open to Genesis chapter 35. Genesis 35. If you're visiting with us tonight, um, we have been going through these chapters uh, in the life of Abraham and then Isaac and now Jacob. We're coming almost to the, the end of the Jacob story, another week of that next week. And then we go on to, to Joseph. So the story continues. But let's go back briefly to chapter 28 and verse 20. This is the first time that Jacob was at Bethel. And this is what he promised. This is the vow he made. Genesis 28, verse 20. Then Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I am taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I will safely return to my father's house, then the Lord will be my God. And this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. And then chapter 35. Now, 30 years later, 30 years later, this is what we read. Then God said to Jacob, Go up to Bethel and settle there and build an altar there to God who appeared to you when you were fleeing from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, get rid of the foreign gods you have with you and purify yourselves and change your clothes. Then come, let us go up to Bethel where I will build an altar to God who answered me in the day of my distress and who has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods they had and the rings in their ears, and Jacob buried them under the oak at Shechem. Then they set out, and the terror of God fell upon the towns all around them so that no one pursued them. Jacob and all the people with him came to Luz, that is Bethel, in the land of Canaan. There he built an altar, and he called the place El Bethel, because it was there that God revealed himself to him when he was fleeing from his brother. Now Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died and was buried under the oak below Bethel. And so it was named Alon, Bacchus. After Jacob returned from Padan Aram, God appeared to him again and blessed him. God said to him, your name is Jacob, but you will no longer be called Jacob. Your name will be Israel. So he named him Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and increase in number. A nation and a community of nations will come from you, and kings will come from your body. The land I give to Abraham and Isaac, I also give to you, and I will give this land to your descendants after you. Then God went up from him at the place where he had talked with him. And Jacob set up a stone pillar at the place where God had talked with him, and he poured out a drink offering on it, he also poured oil on it. 
Jacob called the place where God had talked with him, Bethel. And we thank God for this, his word. Genesis um, 35, 1 to 15. Last week we were in chapter 34, and it was dark, and it was depressing. I'm sure you will agree if you were here. Dinah was raped, and her brothers slay the men of Shechem and plunder the city. Jacob is self-absorbed and passive. In fact, at the end of chapter 34, Jacob referred to himself as the stench among all the local tribes. Boy, it was a messy situation. Jacob was in the wrong place, with the wrong people, with the wrong attitude. Ten years of double-mindedness. Ten years of living as a practical atheist. Ten years of ignoring God. And the consequences? Chaos and confusion. But God. But God. But God is gracious and forgiving. And God is not going to let Jacob go. And so we see in chapter 35 a record of Jacob's return to the Lord. We, we see repentance. We see obedience. We see, I hope, a wonderful example of what God can do in our lives. Because I'd be very surprised tonight if there wasn't some, maybe many, who are struggling with faith, struggling with living for the glory of God. We have a wonderful, hope-filled example for us. Kent Hughes quotes Donald Gray Barnhouse, and I quote, chapter 34 does not mention God once, is full of lust, murder, deceit, and wretchedness, but this chapter, 35, is filled with God. His name appears 10 times, plus once as God Almighty El Shaddai, plus 11 times in the names Bethel or Israel, El being the name for God. The contrast is striking, as, is always, as it always must be in, in the life of a believer living out the will of God, and again when he returns to the will of God. And that's exactly what we see, Jacob returning to the will of God, as the call is to us. We're short of time with 15 verses, so let's get to it. The headings really come from the text, and I hope you find those helpful. The first heading is simply this, go up to Bethel, verse 1. Then God said to Jacob, go up to Bethel and settle there and build an altar there to God who appeared to you when you were fleeing from your brother Esau. It's really, in a sense, a command, of course, a command to worship. Build an altar, break camp, pull up the tent pegs, go to Bethel and settle there. And do what, you might ask, do what? Build an altar to God who appeared to you when you were fleeing from your brother Esau 30 years previously. 30 years. 30 years earlier, God appeared to Bethel, at Bethel, to Jacob, and Jacob vowed what we read earlier on that he would return and he would live there and he would build a house for God there. But we know the story, 20 years with Uncle Laban far away, and then 10 years in self-focused rebellion at Shechem, 30 years largely 
wasted. 30 years, 30 years of famine, spiritual famine, 30 years of unproductive living. <laughs> if you were Yahweh, would you not give up on Jacob? But not our God. Yahweh never let him go. You see, Jacob was always held in the, what we call the grip of grace. And out of his rebellious double-mindedness, God calls Jacob. Then Jacob said, or God said to Jacob, go up to Bethel and settle there and build an altar there to God. Go to Bethel, build an altar. So immediately we're seeing here the priority of worship. Priority of worship. That's key for Jacob to understand that. For us, and for all God's people. And really what God is saying here, notice the order of things. Before you do anything else, Jacob, build an altar. Before you do anything else, sort out your worship. Go back to the place where you met me, where I met you, and you promised me things that you have failed to keep, those vows you failed to keep. And before you dig for a well, before you look for pasture for your animals, before you even pitch your own tent, I want you to build an altar and I want you to worship me. Because our number one vocation in life is to be a worshiper. That's our primary function. That's our main job. How we make a living is very much secondary. We're called to be worshipers. That's going to be our eternal job, and it began the moment we became Christians. What we are doing here this evening, and even later on this evening in the concert, is our priority of worshiping. We're not here to be entertained either now or later on. We're here to worship. On the day that Jesus rose again from the dead, Sunday, we gather corporately to worship. That should be our priority. Nothing else. I mean, and I mean absolutely nothing else should get in the way. If anything else does get in the way, I have to tell you, it's sin. It's sin. And during the week, privately, or with our families, we worship. We're to be living sacrifices. That's why we started our service with Romans 12 and verse 1, about being living sacrifices. I think it was Tim Keller said this, the problem with living sacrifices is that they keep crawling off the altar. And, and so they do. We're to live in the altar. We're to be living sacrifices, our spiritual act of worship. And this church here that meets in this place, this meeting house, and the church that you belong to if you're not a member here, would never be the same if we could only grasp that our real work, that our real job, that our real vocation is following after Jesus, following hard after Jesus, serving Jesus, worshiping Jesus. 
seeking first the kingdom of God and all the other stuff that so often we squeeze into Sundays will be given to us when we need it from the God who is all providing. Of course, as a church, we need to set the priority of worship. But I also think as a church, we need to be the kind of church where people can worship God. And that doesn't happen automatically or easily. It's, it's hard work, as any sacrifice is. But it involves things like the study of the Word and the commitment to prayer and the serving of God and the giving of ourselves and our talents and our tithes and our singing as well. So many parts to being a worshipful church. Churches need to be places where people can worship. So we're not here to be entertained. We're not here to have some religious itch scratched by somebody standing at the front. We're not here to be a political movement, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We're here to worship. That's the command. Go up to Bethel. Get rid of your foreign gods. That's really the second thing that we want to see. And I suppose we may call it the preparation and the repentance. We see that in verses 2 to 4. So, Jacob said to his household and to all who were with them, get rid of the foreign gods you have with you and purify yourselves and change your clothes. Then come, let us go up to Bethel where I will build an altar to God who answered me in the day of my distress and who has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods they had and the rings in their ears and Jacob buried them under the oak at Shechem. I suppose we're thinking here of, of purity and, and cleansing in these verses. In chapter 34, if you were here last week, you will, may remember that Jacob was passive and self-centered and um, his, his leadership was non-existent. Here we see him active and God-centered and he's a leader. The, the, the contrast is dramatic. And of course, I say again to you men, dads and elders and leaders within the church and in the family, Last week, we said, don't be like Jacob in chapter 34. Well, what I want to say to you is be like Jacob now in chapter 35. This is the example we're to follow. Active, leading, God-centered, living out the gospel in our families and then, of course, in our churches. Of course, this is repentance we're talking about in these verses, not regret. The world is full of regret. They think it's a good thing. You know, the world regrets many things, um, making mistakes or getting caught making mistakes or things not working out well. That's regret. Repentance is something completely different. It's active changing. It's turning around. It's rejecting the old life of sin. Repentance is a key issue for us to understand. Kevin DeYoung quotes the Puritan Thomas Watson. Um, and Thomas Watson talked about repentance being like a spiritual medicine made up of six ingredients. Here they are. The sight of sin, sorrow for sin, confession of sin, shame for sin, hatred of sin, and I need another finger, turning from sin. 
six ingredients in the medicine of repentance. And we need to take that medicine regularly before we can truly worship. Because if we do not take the spiritual medicine of repentance before, then worship will simply be a little bit of entertainment at best. And so we have these four commands. I've only put three of them up there. You, you've probably seen that. I, I, uh, idle free living, purity, and interchange. And then come with me to Bethel to worship. If we're going to enter the presence of our holy God and worship him, we dare not come the way we are as human beings. We dare not come without confession and repentance. Idle free living. God says, you shall have no other gods before me. So why do we think we can have other gods before him and still be happy and still worship? There's only 10 big ones, we might say, and that's the first. The second is, you shall not make for yourself an idol in any form of anything in heaven or on earth beneath or the waters below. So why do we think we can actually make our idols and have our idols and still worship. See, Yahweh, the Lord, is intolerant of other gods in the lives of his people and in his churches. He's totally intolerant of that, and he's a jealous God. He's jealous for our love, jealous for our hearts. He made us, and he owns us, and he wants us, and he'll have us. He deserves and demands our exclusive love. He's saying both eyes, both ears, on me and on me alone, he says. Get rid of your idols. Verse 2, get rid of your foreign gods you have with you. Don't come to worship with your idols. And purify yourself, verse 2, also. Set your heart on me. Pursue me. Desire me. Want me. End your pursuit of sin and the ways of the world. And then thirdly, change your clothes. Rather strange, but, you know, we're going to meet the king. Take off your dirty old clothes and put new clothes on. For the audience of one, for the one who is the king, we're entering the palace of the king of all kings. Last week we saw the coronation of of. King Charles and everybody there with all their glamour and style. They dressed fit for a king, and, and we should dress fit for the king. It's symbolic, of course, of interchange. Ephesians 4, verse 22 and 23, put off your old self. In other words, take off the old self clothes which has been corrupted by its deceitful desires and be made new in the attitude of your minds to put on the new self, created to be like God in the true righteousness and holiness. In Colossians 3, there's another passage, rid yourself or take off slander and malice and anger and all those nasty things and put on Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Probably that's where, where 
Paul got the idea. But what God is saying to Jacob and what the Word is saying to us, don't dare come to worship unprepared. And even sometimes these outward actions are symbolic of inner change. Outward actions can be symbolic of what's going on in our hearts and minds and heads and souls. I suppose we might say, why? What's the point of all of this? What's the point of all of this? Well, verse 3, because Yahweh deserves it. He's our ever-present helper. Verse 3, then come, let us go to Bethel, where I will build an altar to God, who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. Jacob's saying, you know, constantly he's been with me. Even those 30 years of rebellion, I'm now aware of his constant presence. He provided everything I've ever needed, and he walks with me constantly. And in verse 4, we see the family followed the leadership of Jacob. And you might be wondering, what are these earrings that were mentioned? Just in case you think, this is something against earrings. Well, they were either the earrings that were on the idols, or they were occultic charm earrings of the men and women of Jacob's family. Either way, they had to go. They had to be buried. And, of course, we might say, as one commentator said, even idols deserve a decent burial. And they were never to be used or seen again. The point, of course, is this. We need to prepare for worship. We should never forget who we're worshiping, and we should not come in with yawns from our mouths and a bored attitude in our hearts and say, this is what I'm going to give to you whether you want it or not. No. We come humbly and reverently and prepared. Psalm 24, 3 and 4, who may ascend the hill of the Lord who may stand in this holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to an idol or swear by what is false. We don't come to worship with a rebellious attitude. We don't come with a cavalier attitude. This is timeless teaching, folks. Have we purified ourselves for today? Putting away our idols burying them, washing our hands, symbolic of purity, changing our clothes, symbolic of a changed life. That's what we see here in preparation for worship. And then thirdly, then they set off, and I suppose we may call this a mini Exodus, verses 5 to 8. What Jacob feared, uh, actually God dealt with. Do you remember last time he was worried that that uh, the local tribes would, would all get together and, and massacre them? Well, actually, look what God does. Um, verse 5, Then they set out, and the terror of God fell upon the towns all around them, so that no one pursued them. And they leave Shechem, verse 6, and they arrive in Bethel, and the priority there is spelled out very clearly in verse 7. There he built an altar, and they called the place El Bethel, because it was there that God revealed himself to him when he was fleeing from his brother. He built an altar. Again, the priority of worship. And look what he calls it. It's very interesting, I think. Um, God, 
of the house of God. El is God. Beth is house. El is God. God of the house of God. In other words, he wasn't here worshiping Bethel. He was worshiping the God who owns Bethel and who owns the whole world. Jacob is focused on God, the person of God, not the place where God happened to be in his experience. It is the person of God we worship, not a building or a place or a postcode. As um, you know, uh, we're really not into steeples and pews and stained glass windows because they don't really matter. Now, if there happens to be there in the building that you use, if you're not a member here, well, that's fine. But they're not necessary for worship. We worship God. God of the house of God, we worship. And so they leave, they set out on that journey after the cleansing and the repentance. And then we have in verse 8 a very sad report. A senior member of the, I was going to say the royal household, the household um, of Jacob dies. And Jeff's going to be dealing with that next week and as he deals with some of the other issues towards the end of the chapter on death and life and what that means. But let's move on um, to the next section. There's only, there's five, there's two more. God appeared to him again and blessed him, verse 9. I suppose we could call this the covenant confirmation, verses 9 to, to 13. The same covenant that was made to Abraham and Isaac is now made to Jacob because, after all, it's a everlasting covenant, which is everlasting, and we're part of it. And God blessed Jacob, now called Israel, Second time this is told, just simply because Jacob obviously forgot and needed to be reminded. God blessed Jacob just where he was, repentant, purified, and changed. And here's the beautiful part of the story, you see. God longs to bless you just where you are, even right now, repentant, purified, and changed. We've got to hear the good news, and we've got to obey the good news. We've got to receive the blessing. And so, yeah, Jacob gets a new name for a new life. But notice that it's El Shaddai, isn't it? Um, Here, the Almighty, verse 11. And God said to I am God Almighty. Be fruitful, increase in number. A nation and a community of nations will come from you, and kings will come from your, your body. This is our God, the all-sufficient one. And he's really saying there to Jacob, Jacob, whatever I demand of you, I will supply for you. Be fruitful, he says, and multiply. Echoes of earlier chapters in Genesis. And of course, from Jacob, we have the 12 tribes of Israel, the foundation of the nation. But notice what he also says about kings coming from your body, verse 11. And that would have included you all our favorite kings like David and Solomon. And I wonder what other king might have come from the line of Jacob. Oh, yeah, King Jesus. You see, this covenant is an everlasting covenant. 
And our king is King Jesus, and he's with us, and he's in us, and he sustains us, and he strengthens us. The everlasting covenant is for all us as well. And in Jesus, we have all that God has promised and all that God has provided. And then lastly, let's think of Jacob setting up a stone pillar. We might call this the consecration right at the end, verse 14 and 15. Jacob set up a stone pillar at the place where God had talked with him, and he poured out a drink offering on it. He also poured oil on it. Jacob called the place where God had talked with him Bethel. Jacob once again marks the place, this place of consecration. 30 years after the stairway to heaven experience, Jacob's back at Bethel. He's back with God. He's back a changed man. And it took 30 years of self-centered living, 30 years of double-mindedness, 30 years of waste. But throughout those 30 years, here's the good news. God held him in his grip. God never let him go. And after El Shaddai's beautiful blessing and renewed promises, Jacob responds by, by putting up a stone pillar. It's kind of almost um, quite matter-of-factly stated there. Jacob set up a stone pillar at the place where God had talked with him. And he poured out a drink offering on it, and he also poured oil on it. But I, I guess, I guess there was great passion and emotion when he did that. I guess that it wasn't just, you know, drink offering poured out on it and some oil. I reckon tears flowed from his eyes. And Jacob realized, what have I done? What have I done? We see here a depth and a devotion that was missing 30 years earlier. We, we see a man here now maturing, slowly, but maturing. And it's a bit like that very often in our lives too. Look back over my life and say, if only I'd learned that lesson back then, I would not have wasted so many years you can't, you can't rewind the clock. But tonight, we can consecrate ourselves afresh. But when we're in Christ and when we're filled with the Spirit and when we are committed to the Word, we can experience wonderful fruit sooner and faster. And we don't have to waste 30 years. But even if we have, well, we can return. We can come back. How? By putting off the sinful nature and putting on the new nature. We are dependent on grace. This is what Kent Hughes says, a constant grace 
rained upon Jacob. Most often, like a gentle mist, and sometimes as a fierce downpour. Grace had etched and watered his stubborn soul, and now he had grown. I love that. I wonder tonight, are we in need of grace? Maybe for a while now, we've just been stubborn. We've been addicted to idols. We've been rebelling, and maybe it has been 30 years, or 30 months, or 30 days. It makes no difference. The call is to return and say, you know what? I'm going to put my idols away. I'm going to bury them because they're dead, only fit for the ground. And I'm going to live in Christ. And grace calls us, you see. That's the beauty of grace. It calls us to say no to self, no to sin, and yes to Jesus. 2 Peter 3, verse 18, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's the source of grace. He ultimately is the answer. We've got to get rid of our idols. Bury them. Repent. Then we'll be able to worship Him in spirit and in truth. We'll be able to go to God of the house of God. El Bethel. And know that we're held in the grip of grace. Held by Jesus. And fit to worship Him because of who he is. May you know that grip of grace these days. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to see a man gripped in the beauty of grace, changed by a gracious Savior and now a better man, a better father. And we pray that as we try to learn these lessons and translate them into our lives and into our situations, we pray that we will put our stubborn ways behind us. We will leave our idols aside. We will stop our rebellion. We will fall into the gracious arms of our Savior. And we'll know only what he brings, peace and blessing and fruitfulness. And so our God, bless us now and even throughout the rest of this evening, minister to us, we pray. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.